Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where we bring together the big names in tech to talk about the big ideas. And today, we're talking about the future of productivity. How can you be better at getting everything done? How can you communicate better in public, build better rituals into your day, and what tools can help? And how can you eat your frog and get that hardest thing done first so you're not dreading it the rest of your afternoon? To guide us through this, we've got CEO of collaboration app Coda, Shashir Marotra, who's also the former VP of product of YouTube and a true productivity master. He has written incredible guides to how to get more done, and today he's going to give us a little bit of the state of the union of productivity, some of his personal philosophies and tips, and we're going to explore the trends of what productivity is going to look like in five years. So Shashir, I want to jump right in. Maybe you could just give us a quick breakdown of what is your core philosophy on productivity? What do you teach people that makes the biggest impact in how they get things done in their life? Well, first off, Josh, thanks for having me. This is super fun. You sent me the topic list and it's going to be a wide ranging discussion. So I'm excited for it. But and you mentioned one that I give a lot, the eat your frog. That's a, it's apparently a Mark Twain quote, but it's not really a Mark Twain quote. But if you go look it up, apparently he didn't actually say it, but the quote, is if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. And the, it's kind of a gross analogy, but the, the idea is, I'm sure we've all had that situation. You look down at your task list and there's one really ugly task sitting on there. Maybe it's hard, maybe it's just something undesirable, maybe it's a thing you've been putting off for a while. Mark Twain's advice was grab that one, eat it first, and the idea is that not only you get out of the way, you feel like re-energized for the day. It's like, look, I get nothing else done. I got the hardest one done first. And, you know, everybody has different philosophies on this. Some people like to build up momentum. They take off all the simple things. But I do think this idea of eating your frog is really important. And at minimum, I would suggest to people to at least recognize what your frog is. So like, if you go look at my to-do list, I have a column called frog. And it actually shows a little frog emoji next to that task. And, and just doing that piece by itself of like, okay, that's the frog. That's the one that I put off yesterday and I have to do today. And that's the one that just going to require a little bit of extra activation energy. But I'll give you a different one though, that I think is even more impactful. And this one I definitely can't take credit for, but I have become its biggest proponent. So I don't know if you're familiar with Des Trainer. Des is the co-founder of Intercom. I like to call them the question mark company. So on many websites, including Coda, the little question mark in the bottom right corner, that's Intercom. That's severely underestimating what they actually do. But <laughs> that's what most people see. Anyways, he had this tweet. This was uh, like two years ago now. And the tweet said, thinking about productivity and its tools, your email is what others think you should work on. Your to-do list is what you think you should work on. Your calendar is usually what you actually work on, how much they overlap in your world. And if you go look up his tweet, it's easy to find. It's one of his most popular ones that has all these little Venn diagrams of your to-do lists, your email, and your calendar. And I thought this was, first off, it's like a really astute observation. Any, any busy person I tell that to, they immediately nod their heads and say, yes, that's exactly my life. I'm constantly dealing with my email is what other things people should uh, want me to do. I've got a to-do list, but then I'm like, whatever my calendar says, that's what I'm actually going to do. And then he developed this method. He published a pretty good doc about it that I highly recommend. I use this method now. And it basically, the doc you published actually syncs in your email and your calendar. And it's a, it's a pretty simple flow. You star messages in your email, it shows up in the doc. You sync your calendar in. And then he does this linking process so that through your week, you actually watch your time go to things on your to-do list instead of to other things. And at the end, it has this chart. And the chart's pretty awesome. It basically is like the Venn diagram. It says what percentage of your time was spent on things that were on your to-do list and not. And it has a little number on there. Um, and so it did calculate the percentage of time. So this week, I'm at 46%. I've learned that any week where I cross 50% is a good week for me, which is like this totally <laughs> humbling, kind of ridiculous observation that I only control half my time. But I, I mean, I've been doing this now for like a year and a half. And that number, by the way, like I shared with my EA has a number. She knows how well I'm feeling about what I'm working on this week. If it gets down to 20%, it's like, okay, you're not working on the things that are actually on your list. We need to change something. But I'd say, you know, in terms of tips and productivity, eat your frog first and find a way to get your email communication, whatever tool you use, your tasks and your calendar to actually align. And I would, I would just go grab Dez's 
the method and, and use it. It's really good. I love that philosophy around frogs because if you don't do that, it's not just eating your frog first, but also knowing what the frog is. Because if you have to wake up each day and make that decision and choose between a bunch of things, it can really sap your willpower and make you feel like, oh, I'm already almost exhausted just making that big decision rather than actually applying it to getting things done. But I think the most fascinating thing you talked about there was the idea of the email being what other people think your task list or your to-do list should be. And so I would love to hear if you have any tips of how to prevent that from happening. Because I think a lot of us look at their email list as just, you know, they're this endless set of tasks that other people kind of indiscriminately assign to you. You know, it takes a few seconds to send an email sometimes, but a while to actually respond to it properly. You know, what have you found works for making sure that you don't end up being just completely ruled by your email inbox? Oh boy, this is deep, deep topics. Okay, so first off, I'm a zero inboxer. Not everybody is. And I know some very productive people who are not. So I'm not suggesting you have to be, but if you are, you got to decide quickly if you are, you need to run in a certain set of ways. I actually keep a little code of doc that's a super simple one. All it does is every hour it queries my email and it stores how many messages are in my inbox in both my personal and my corporate account. And I get a little chart. And so I can see it over time. And it's kind of like, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, you got to get on the scale first. And like everybody says, get, get a scale, put it in front of your bathroom counter and get on it every single day. And that'll just force you to start thinking about it. So first step is you got to stay on top of it. I think most people just let their problem get out of control and then you're sort of drowning. You can never catch up. And I do find it's one of these like negative feedback loops, right? If you, for me, if that number gets above about a hundred and you know, I get a lot of emails, so you can imagine it gets above a hundred fast, but if it stays above a hundred for very long, then it shoots to 500. And at that point, it's like you got to block off a week to get through it all. So I think that's really important. Just get on the scale, track it, watch it. The next thing for me is I do what I call a two-pass email system. And I started doing this probably 10 years ago now using some really crappy way of doing it in Gmail. And then when Superhuman came out, I still remember when Rahul pitched me Superhuman and he showed me they have this feature called split inboxes. And then I pulled up how I do it in Gmail. And I just like, I basically built the same thing in Gmail, but in like a much, much more complicated way. But the philosophy is pretty simple is I do two passes on email. And the idea is don't context switch. So my first pass through my email is to label everything. And I have a ton of filters and so on that try to auto label as much as they can. At any given point, I'll still have some that the cracks people who haven't emailed before or new subject lines or whatever. And those go into a series of these split inboxes and they're just split by label. And then I can go through those things topically. So I have, I can sort of sit down and say, all right, I'm ready to do everything the recruiting team needs out of me. And okay, I got to respond to candidates. I got to approve offers. I got to, you know, then I have another one for customers and it's okay. I got to go through the customers. Some of these people have escalation. Some of these people need a approval or need a meeting or whatever it might be. And you kind of, I kind of go through those things and you can do it topically. One other tip is whatever taxonomy you pick for that, use it for everything. And so I, my scheme I use, it's a zero to nine numbering scheme. So I, my yay knows like label zero means this, label one means this, label two means this. I've been using the same one for so long now that it's like ingrained in my head. But my to-do list has the same structure. My email labels are the same structure. My calendar colors match that. So I can easily see where I'm spending time. That doesn't sound neurotic at all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> When you do labels, you're going to pick something. Most people, they pick and they don't think about, oh, I want a system that actually matches. You know, a lot of busy people color their calendar, which is another tip that I would highly recommend. But they like don't, they don't have any idea what the colors represent. And their colors don't represent the same thing in different tools. And so now you have to like remember that. And I think that's, that's like much, much worse. So that way I've got, okay, number two means customers. It's red. I can look at my calendar. I can look at my email. I can look at my to-do list and all of them match. Um, and so anyway, so that's a little bit of what I do with my email. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this concept that you have. I love this idea. So if you guys are, are trying to get a, a sense of what we're talking about, if you go to the, the little link at the top, Shashir's to-do list philosophy, you can find a bunch of these deep ideas. But I wanted to hear you break down this concept of etch-a-sketchers versus pilers, these two different kind of categories of people uh, and how they, they label their tasks. Because I can't tell if I'm just neither in the sense that like I, I, I keep a, t- a, a list of tasks, but I just keep on letting it pile up and I don't necessarily 
actually cross things off very often. And then I wake up each day and I don't necessarily do the first thing on my task list. So I feel like I'm falling somewhere in between, but maybe you can just break <laughs> down this concept for us and maybe why I need to like get get my stuff in gear and just figure out uh, if I want to be a piler or an Etch-a-Sketcher. I mean, it's a little bit like your zero inbox question is you don't really have to be a zero inboxer, but you shouldn't be in the middle. And so I kind of feel the same way about to-do list, just to make sure the analogy is clear for everyone. Someone gave me this a long time ago and said, the way people run their to-do list, they're generally one of two extremes. They're Etch-a-Sketchers and Pilers. And Etch-a-Sketchers start every day fresh. Do people these days know what an Etch-a-Sketch is? Maybe I feel like it needs to be like replaced with like Snapchat something. Like, are you are you a Snapchatter or a Piler? Yeah, I don't know what the inverse of Snapchat. I don't know. But, um, but you know, Etch-a-Sketch is this old kid's drawing tool where if you shook it, it just all raced. And so one set of people are Etch-a-Sketchers and they start every day fresh and they take whatever the list was yesterday and they kind of like copy over some things, but they're like starting with a fresh sheet of paper or a fresh to-do list or fresh note or whatever it is every single day. And then there are pilers and pilers like to take all their different stuff and get them out of their head and into their list. You know, another philosophy that people read a lot about is getting things done. So getting things done is sort of designed around pilers and they use a term, they call it mind like water. And the idea is that by getting it out of your head and onto your list, you can now stop thinking about that and you can start thinking about whatever you really should be doing right now. So you can, you can focus better if you use your list that way. This is like clearing out RAM into like hard drive space. Exactly right. So I think these are sort of two different philosophies. You can be an edge sketcher, you can be a piler. I'm a piler. It took me a while to like kind of come to terms with that. And again, I know some incredibly productive people that are Etch-a-Sketchers. My wife is an Etch-a-Sketcher, like a literal pen and paper Etch-a-Sketcher, and she's very productive, but I'm a piler. And then you have to design your way of working around that. And if you're going to be a piler, then start by figuring out what are your piles? Where are they going to go? All those things kind of have to go together. And if you're an Etch-a-Sketcher, then pick what's going to be your mechanism for your Etch-a-Sketch. And, you know, is it paper? Is it a note? As I've seen people do it with a new email message every day. They send themselves a note saying this is what my list for today is going to be. You know, I've seen so many different ways that people do it. But that's the idea. Just get those filers. We have a, a special guest quick. We have Paul Davison, the co-founder of Clubhouse. Paul, you guys have gotten a lot done in a year. This app has gone from being like one single room to being this hallway with all these new features, loving this new uh, pinned link feature. Are you a piler or an Etch-a-Sketcher? <laughs> I was just going to say... Can I join this room? Because productivity tips would be useful. <laughs> we have so much stuff to get done. So I just got out of something and came up here a few minutes late. So I only heard the end of the definition of the pilot. Are you somebody who starts each day with a new set of tasks and maybe copies a few over from yesterday? Or do you like aggressively pile up a one permanent task list that you're like constantly checking things off of? Oh, I'm in between. Oh, so no. I, <laughs> that's what Shashira says is the death sentence. <laughs> I've broken your model. So I understand the appeal of like a clean, fresh to-do list, right? But I'll normally it'll go on for like a couple days and then I'll run out of space on the page and then I will start a new one and I get the satisfaction from starting a new one. People just do it forever until they're done with it. By the way, that's an Etch-a-Sketcher in my mind. Because <laughs> 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 for a piler, the idea of like how to copy over things and so on, that's no, it's pretty. But it, the, the interesting thing is I've seen, I went to this conference a couple of years ago. There's a Getting Things Done conference. Like David Allen actually ran uh-huh. the conference in Amsterdam, it was amazing. I went and I met all these like GTD people. I didn't realize there was like such a community around this. They asked me to give a talk actually about this topic. And so, so I went and talked about it and I'm like meeting all these people and it was like, it's almost like religious. They're like, how could you yeah, possibly it really be an is. It really is. <laughs> Crazy how this is one of those problems that is so universal and so unsolved. Like I remember talking with my friend Gentry who built Mailbox along with my other friend Scott, like years ago. And they were working on an earlier version of it called Orchestra. And it was a collaborative to-do list. And the idea was that everyone does their to-dos in email. That's a really bad system. Let's build a really nice collaborative to-do app so that people can work together on their to-dos more efficiently. And then eventually they just said, ah, this is too hard. We can't get people to do this. We have to make an email client instead. So they made Mailbox the email client and ended up selling to Dropbox. But but this is a problem that people have been dealing with for thousands of yeah. years, I'm sure. But like, <laughs> the internet yeah. hasn't solved it yet. Yeah. The only tip I give on this is, and it, you can, there's lots of different tools. It's like not really a tool choice, but just be a one extreme or the other. Like if you're going to be an Etch-a-Sketcher, 
start every day fresh, pick your frog. Paul, you probably missed that part of it, but frog is like the one thing you really need to get done that day. That's the ugly looking task uh, that you're going to put, you are going to end up putting off. So put a little frog next to it and make sure that's top of your list. And if you're an etch sketcher just do it and commit to it and start every day fresh and get yourself a notebook and you get yourself a whole stack of notebooks that have plenty of pages or whatever, whatever mechanism you use for it. But if you're a piler, which I am, you got to invest in your piling system. I think a, a lot of pilers do it and I think they take it too superficially and they pick, oh, I'll just pick any castle system. I'll drop stuff in there. And then they'll realize that they didn't set it up right. And they didn't really think about, okay, this is how I want to, divide up work or you need to make choices like a, a really important choices is your to-do list what i call projects or tasks for some people it's very helpful to be super granular like i'm going to do this big project there's 10 steps every single step is going to be a task for me i find that not that useful like all i need is a little tickle reminder of like i gotta go work on this thing i kind of know what the next piece of it is and i just keep one column of what's the next task and i don't really bother with like writing out all the ones after that because i'm pretty sure once i get started i'll figure out the rest of it but you, you got to make all those choices as you're starting. Sometimes it's like way harder to be a piler than an Etch-a-Sketcher. And Etch-a-Sketchers are always apologetic about it. They're like, oh, I don't really have a system. Yeah, you do. It's <laughs> <laughs> like you have a list. It's a huge step, right? And it's just very different personalities. And as a side note, I have, I have two, two young kids, two daughters. They're 13 and 15. And I'm trying to teach them these techniques now. And we don't actually teach our kids how to do this. Like, I, I think it's actually quite bad. I think that's true for so many things in life. <laughs> you think about this sort of thing, personal finance and nutrition and how to have a healthy relationship. There, there's, there are a lot of important things that we don't teach our kids how to do. Okay, so with that, I want to move on to our next topic. Shashir, how did you become a productivity master? Like, how did this become part of your personality? Maybe you could just like wind us back. Was this something that you learned from your parents? Did you see them kind of become like really caring about productivity? Was it some, you know, some moment along your work journey? Like, what is your productivity superhero origin story? Definitely not from my parents. It's no offense to them. They're just that's just not how they think. They're both Etch-a-Sketchers, which did not really appeal to me. And not really even in college. Like, I, I feel like I, did, I, I somehow got through college. I was just never really that good at this. But towards the end of college, if I had to pick a moment in the late 90s, I know it's ancient for a lot of the people. The late 90s, I was an intern at Microsoft, and I worked on Outlook. Um, and I never actually used Outlook before. I know these days, you know, I think still very popular, but a lot of people have, have switched over Gmail and so on. But I worked on Outlook, and just when you're on the inside of a product like that, you get to see how people use it. And I think I, I think I got hooked then. And it was just like, okay, I, I have this tool, and it, and Outlook also actually combines email tasks and calendar, and say, so ironically, well ahead of its time from that perspective. And that's when I developed my coloring system and my numbering system, and and so on. And the numbers have shifted a little bit over the years, but they're actually pretty close to where what I started with back then. But I think that's when I got a taste for it. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's a person, right? If they meet somebody who's super organized, so like a roommate, it's interesting where it comes from. Yeah, I feel like for me, when I meet people who are incredibly well organized, I'm sort of like, I don't actually want that to be my life. Like I want some aspect of serendipity and like to be able to follow the flow of, okay, finally, I, I feel like writing, like my fingers want to move and I just want to put something on the page versus like, oh, I'm not really sure. Let me just like crank out some tasks in the meantime. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, but I was having this conversation with Larry Page when I was at Google and Larry and I were having our one-on-ones and he had somehow heard about one of my systems. And he said, I heard you have the system for your time and you build this like calendar thing for where you spend time. And, and he said, somebody told me that you've allocated 30 hours a week to your standing calendar. And he said, is that true? And I said, yeah, that's, that's about right. It's like 29 and a half hours. That's what it was. And I said, is that a lot or a little? And he's like, oh my God, that's so much. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, he's like, this is described how his calendar works. And Larry had like this incredibly free calendar. I still, to this day, am not really sure how he did it. You know, CEO of a major company. and so on. <laughs> Spending a lot of daydreaming time in his office is with the feet kicked up. No, no, no. He was, I mean, he did a lot. Of, he worked hard. Yeah, but it's not, it's not how he used his calendar. And you did optimize for that sort of serendipity and so on. And for me, it's just I, my philosophy on it's a little bit different. I like to have my time organized. I like to know where I'm spending it. And I'm, and I've sort of come to the conclusion that if I don't control it, then other people will. 
and I'd rather control it myself. Larry was actually, from that perspective, he was quite available. Right? If you needed time from him, it was like relatively easy to get. And so people could control his time that way. It's interesting. It's not everybody that has to work that way. Do you think that there was anything else maybe like from your childhood, perhaps like a moment when being disorganized or not having, you know, your productivity managed properly, like really hurt you or someone around you? I'm, I'm looking for that like Batman origin story. Like who is who is the mugger that murdered your like productivity parents to like force you to become this productivity like crime fighter? I mean, I did this internship at Microsoft. That was between my sophomore and junior year in college. And it was definitely... I don't know if other people have this or maybe this is just weird me, but for years, like the nightmares I would have when I dreamed, would, I would have these nightmares about, oh crap, I woke up and I forgot that I have a test today. And then like the nightmare was always I have a test in a class that I've been skipping all the lectures and so I have no idea where the classroom even is. <laughs> and so you're like kind of, you got it up and, and trying to figure out where you're supposed to go. I mean, I do think college has a little bit of that. College is a very natural time for people to come to that realization because like, I watch my kids now. I mean, they're in high school and middle school. They're like, day is so structured. I mean, they're, they're like in school from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And they go from this class to that class. And the teachers remind them 18 times of what they're supposed to be doing into the next five minutes. And so then you go to college and you're like, oh, my God, I have so much time. I can do anything. And then you realize that you've really got to manage. You've really got to manage yourself. I was a CS and math major. My math classes were kind of hilarious this way because I had multiple math classes where the entire class was they give you five problems for like the entire semester. And you're just have to, you just have to work on your own to work on these things. And so if you don't manage your time and your pace towards these things, then it doesn't work. But so for me, it was definitely the moments were there. You know, after that, there's been plenty of work moments where you look back at a week or a month and I'm a pretty active journaler as well. So I'll like write down, just write down how you're feeling. And, you know, some people do it daily. I can't do it daily, but it hasn't worked for me. But, you know, probably once a month, once every couple months, I'll write down how I'm feeling, what's working, what's not. And inevitably, my regret is something where, like, I should have spent time on this, but I didn't. And, you know, sometimes it's work-related. Sometimes it's something with my kids. Sometimes it's my health. And I'll go, I'll go a month without working out. I'm like, man, I don't really feel like shit, and here's why. And so I think there was the college. Like, did I miss the test? And then through life, you just find that if you're a little bit more on top of things, you get to extend your time a little bit more than other people do. Yeah, I don't feel bad that you had some weird nightmares like that. You know, when I was reporting on Facebook when I worked at TechCrunch for eight years, Mark Zuckerberg would frequently show up in my dreams. That's something I really shouldn't probably admit in public, but it's so, it's just so strange how frequently, and it wasn't like him doing him things. He'd just be like there in the background on the side. I'm just like, oh man, this guy is lurking in my brain. But I do love that idea of, of journaling. It seems like something that a lot of people that do do it find it incredibly productive. I was just thinking about Connor White Sullivan, the CEO of Rome, and you know, he's an incredibly aggressive life logger. You know, every single thing, like down to the few minutes, he's like basically Basically treats his own life like he's time logging himself as a lawyer like he's asking for his own billable hours and he says that like really what he can do then is look back and find these incredible insights about like what were his biggest not to do's and the things that he would like constantly resort to when he was maybe faced with a big or tough decision and where he would kind of retreat to to avoid a decision or to avoid a task and I feel like that don't do list is almost as important as your to do list. Shashir what is on your don't do list and you know, how do you keep yourself from you know, succumbing to the temptation? My don't-do list. Hmm. The most obvious one that comes to mind first is I have a general rule that from about 6.30 to 9 o'clock, I don't work. And that's my time with the kids and with the family and hang with the wife. And we try to go out to dinner. Or we'll, my kids do this. Uh, they're on this robotics team, and it's, which I coach. And so we end up doing that a lot. But I think that was a big step was sort of blocking out that time of focus time where put your phone away and just be kind of mentally available for your family and, and so on. That's probably the biggest one I can think of. There's definitely some that I don't do a good job of. I mean, I try really hard to eat healthy and there's a long list of things that I'm not supposed to eat, but I'm much more disciplined with my time than I am with my diet, unfortunately. I mean, to that end, do you subscribe to that concept of like willpower as a muscle, something that Very fatigues so. over time and that you really need to like protect the strength and endurance that you have for a muscle for what the tasks that really need it and avoid kind of expending all of that effort on a decision that might be tough to make, but doesn't really have much impact, which has led to some, you know, Silicon Valley moguls doing the, I only wear one thing every single day. That way I don't have that decision on my plate anymore 
more, even if that kind of like removes some of that maybe serendipity or self-expression, you know, what's your take on, on, uh, on that and how do you apply that to your life? I definitely agree on not only willpower, but just sort of mental space. So I got, I have my log of like what's in my inbox. And so that turns, turns out to be like my earliest warning sign. And my wife actually now knows how to go look at it and she'll come and say, man, you're like really not attentive right now or you're being crabby and she'll go look at it and figure out why. And it's like when your head piles up with things that it shouldn't, like the garbage builds up in there. I don't know if if you're a Seinfeld fan, but the famous episode where George and Elaine both decided not to have sex, Uh, George is uh, all of a sudden he like, became really smart and he learned a new language and so on because like all this garbage pulled out of his head because he was spending so much of his time <laughs> trying to write to meet women but it, like the sort, sort of same analogy of like david allen that mind like water is i think that if you can just get stuff out of your head it just opens you up to be being able to do things and and reducing decisions is one way to do that but i think there's also just people hold stress in and sometimes that stress you can't shed it and that's hard right i mean there's real there's real stresses in life and then there's stress that you're holding on to and you don't have to. And you can just let it go. And it's like, it's amazing to watch myself. Like when I go through those moments, I'm like really stressed and I go look and it's like, oh, it's because these three tasks are sitting on your list. And actually, you don't need to do them. Or like, this is what's happening. Most of when I, when I journal, that's what I discover. It's like, okay, I held this extra stress. Here's why. And here's what you can do about it. Brian Chesky has a really good, the Airbnb founder, has a really good a way of looking at his task list. He says, so you have my frog analogy as another one. He says, uh, go look for the thing that creates the most leverage. So he goes and finds in his task list, if I do this one, then I'm going to set up this other person to do like 20 other things for me. You know, it's kind of like the, the be as lazy as possible theory, sort of related to like, if you optimize for freeing up your headspace, don't wear different clothes and so on. It's, I, it's an often used example, but it's kind of a poor one. I mean, if anybody's really that stressed about what they're wearing, there's probably... I don't think you have to cut out variety on that completely in order to do that. But I think that the core idea of like, just figure out what your head is filled with and get it out of your head. And you can feel it. Like you can feel the difference when, you're, when your mind is clear. Shashir, I want to ask you a little bit more about what happened when you joined YouTube and what lessons you might be able to share from that. YouTube at the time didn't have the best reputation. It was known as kind of a bit of a messy company and you came in and seemed to be able to really whip them into shape. And that's something where I know a lot of people, they join new companies that might have very different processes for how to work. First, maybe you could just tell us what that experience was like going into YouTube and how did you try to you know get things on the right track and what lessons did you learn? from that to say it was not in a glamorous place is like a huge understatement i i joined youtube 2008 everybody i knew my friends my mom my mom would send me these articles it'd be youtube is a big fail bucket youtube is uh google's first fat acquisition because google had a pretty good track record of at the time and there's lots of good reason for it right i mean what was youtube known for it was known for at the time it was grainy videos it was copyright lawsuits it was losing a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of different things. None of that felt very good. And my first meeting with Pat Patrick Bichette was the relatively new CFO at Google. And I remember my first meeting with Patrick, and this happened like a week after my second daughter was born. So he'd go in and have this meeting where he's got these three charts laid out in front of him. And he says, okay, I want to talk about YouTube. And he said, the first chart is, here's how much money YouTube is losing per year. And it was... Um, hundreds of millions of dollars. It wasn't quite billions yet, but it would become that. <laughs> That's terrifying. That's our first chart. The second chart was, here's how much money YouTube loses per view. And it was all, not quite, but almost a penny per view. And then the third chart was, here's what views are doing. And it wasn't like a kind of slight growth up. Like it was this like skyrocketing chart. I mean, the viewership for YouTube was, it was growing so quickly what people often call the hockey stick chart. And he looks at this and he says, this is like the worst business I've ever seen. He's like, I've been CFO for a long time. This is terrible. He said, who else wanted to buy this thing and are they still interested? And so that was kind of the, what we walked into. And right? it's like, everybody kind of gave it up. It was like, this is not going to work. This is unsavable. And growth, I mean, people look at it now, it's like, there's such a big property. Like, yeah, but it's a big property that's losing that much money. It's like, you just put $1.65 billion into this property, which I know nowadays doesn't sound like a lot, but at that time, that's a lot of money. And then you're still losing almost a billion dollars a year and no end in sight and you know, kind of broken business model and so on. So that was the, the sort of climate we walked into. Now, of course, all of us that chose to go into that thought that was a stupid way of looking at it. 
and uh, and kind of had a viewpoint on, on what could turn it around. But it did attract this really like interesting personality group. And you know, sometimes people like to read off and often calls it the pirates versus the Navy. That it was definitely the pirates, right? It was these people that were everybody in there had some family member or friend that told them not to join YouTube. And they did it anyway. <laughs> so we showed up and, and everybody was, you know, it doesn't always happen in, you know, big companies. Everyone was like very team oriented, very comfortable, very oriented to whatever it was going to take to make this thing work. And everything was on the table. You know, we could, we could do anything, change any part of the product, we could change any part of the business model, we could change anything. Because the world has kind of written us off, our own company's written us off. So let's go give it a try. And it was just so much fun. Until we started Coda, I don't think I had anywhere near that much fun in any other job. And it, it was exhilarating. So what were the big things that you changed or like what were the lessons that you learned from that experience of taking this incredible idea and incredible momentum and great team vibe of, you know, being on this pirate ship together, but actually turning it into a functional ship that can sail the seas without sinking? There's a couple things that came out of it. First off, I think every great business has a really simple thesis. And, you know, if you go look at great businesses in history and you sort of peel them apart and say, you know, what was their, what was the core idea, right? I mean, Google's core idea was they weren't the first search engine that ever existed, but their view was that search could be faster and more relevant. And it's not that hard to understand the rest of the strategy, but search could be faster, more relevant. Not everybody thought that, not everybody agreed with that. In fact, most of the world thought it was a dead market and they just went after it. I mean, Gmail was even simpler, right? Gmail's thesis was people shouldn't have to delete email, which nowadays I think people probably don't even remember why like having inbox full in your in your email but it was like really simple how, how, how that could work so first off it was really important to understand the youtube thesis and lean all the way into it the youtube thesis was or is that online video would do to cable what cable did to broadcast we went from three broadcast channels to 300 cable channels and the viewpoint was we're about to have millions of online video channels and interestingly the first time i made that statement i'd been in the job for like two months and i went to this conference in New York and I made that statement on my video, we'll do the cable, what the cable did the broadcast. I almost got kind of laughed out of the room. Like people came up to me afterwards and like, I don't really understand what you mean. And again, to put this in context, most people thought YouTube's competition was MySpace and Flickr. Like that was who we were. MySpace was super hot then. That was the alternative place you could go put your videos. And then there was Flickr that had like more of a photo sharing site, but they had some video support. And that's kind of how people looked at us. And so I get up there and I talk about online videos going to do cable, cable to broadcast. And people are like, what are you talking about? Like, this is like, doesn't make any sense. How can you compare dogs on skateboards to Disney and ESPN? Like this, this doesn't make any sense. But that's what we believed. And we believed it really strongly. And we let it craft our entire strategy and how we thought about creators. And, you know, we made probably one of the most fateful decisions we made was we opened up the creator partner program. YouTube is still the only major platform that directly pays its creators. And for us, it was like just so obvious. Online video is going to do to cable, cable to broadcast is going to be a big business built here. And the best way to make that flywheel turn is to share the economics with the people actually building the content. It's not at all obvious to the rest of the world. It would be weird for Flickr to do that. It doesn't really make any sense. It probably also didn't make a lot of sense before mobile when you're like, oh, well, why would I sit down on my computer to watch a one minute video? It's like, well, as it turns out, if you don't have to sit down on your computer to watch that video, you have a lot more one minutes than you have 30 minutes or 90 minutes. Yes, although, I mean, viewership for YouTube was off the charts. I mean, there was, like, no concern about that. Why, the question was, like, why, like, for this, this particular question, why bother paying anybody? You don't need to pay them. They seem to be uploading just fine. We sort of made this bet that if we did, this business would grow. So there's, there's a series of bets that we made that was all aligned on this sort of simple thesis of the business. I think we just got a lot of things right. And we developed a framework for making decisions. I now refer to it as a term called eigenquestions. questions. And I'll tell you a good example was, uh, we called it the modern family question, which was you look at the YouTube searches and just rank them by volume in the top 10 every single week was modern family. Modern family was at the time, the number one show on television it was on ABC and we didn't have modern family on YouTube. And it was this big debate in the team of what should we do? And the, basically the, the, the team split in half. There was the product and engineering teams, they said, we should just link off to abc.com. People want to get the modern family. We are now owned by Google. We should do right by the user and send them off to abc.com. The other half of the company, you know, all the business folks, the content folks, the marketing folks, the sales folks, they said, that's like such a dumb idea. Like if you do that, 
nobody's ever going to put good content on YouTube. We're only going to be dogs on skateboards. Like you got to wait and let that demand build. And it's like all this debate about it. And it was basically like good versus evil, how this split. And then we had this offsite in Half Moon Bay. So I got asked to come up with a frame for it. And so as I was preparing the night before, I ended up reading some of what a different team at Google was going through, the Google shopping team. And they were in this like deep, all-out fight with Amazon. They were kind of perplexed. Amazon was kicking Google Shopping's butt, and they couldn't really understand why, because every everybody's viewpoint was, why would you ever search on Amazon when you can come to Google Shopping? And we had everything that Amazon had, plus everything else on the web. Why would a consumer ever choose to go there? And then when they would interview users, they would all say, well, I know it doesn't have everything on the web, but I don't really care. I want that more consistent experience. I want to know that the reviews make sense and understand how the product returns work and I know the shipping will work and so on. And so Amazon was kicking Google Shopping's butt. And so we come in to this offsite to discuss the modern family question and I decided to start it with a different question. So let's not talk about link out versus not linked out and, and so on. Let's talk about consistent versus comprehensive. Is the video market going to be one where consistency is valued or is it going to be one where comprehensiveness is valued? And let's go decide which one it is. And that we could have a healthy debate on. It's no longer good versus evil. It's like, it's a totally reasonable question. Which way is it going to go? Is it going to be more like shopping or is it going to be more like the rest of the web? And we came to the conclusion that we thought consistency was going to win. And so we made this call and then we really committed to it. And we've returned into one of our principles. We decided not to link out. YouTube still doesn't link out. But we also kicked off all the embed players on YouTube. I don't know if you remember back then. You could like embed all these different players. A lot of video uh, properties supported. We got rid of all of that. Probably the most famous decision we made was to drive down to Cupertino and tell the Apple folks that they could no longer build the YouTube app. I know it might sound crazy, but the YouTube app, the original YouTube mobile app was not actually built by us. It was built by Apple. There was no app store. There was no APIs. There was no, like, there was no SDK. There was none, none of that that existed. And so they built it all, which, you know, in retrospect, that was uh, nice of them to do. But I had to go down there and they, they you know, it's Phil Schiller. And first of all, and they said, I don't understand. You're going to give up default distribution on the biggest operating system on the planet. Isn't that really dumb? Like, just tell us what we need to do. Like we, and I said, no, 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 look, it's not, it's not that. Like we've, we've got this principle. It says we value consistency over comprehensiveness and we'd much rather have a consistent YouTube experience than be on all these devices with only half the catalog you played back on the iPhone. We're so far behind our roadmap. We had like a list of these, we call these eigen questions. Eigen questions, a term we made up. It's named after a, mathematical term called eigenvectors. So in a multidimensional space, the most discriminating vector is the eigenvector. It's a linear algebra machine learning term. It doesn't really matter. The math doesn't matter. But we, the eigen question is the question where if answered, it answers 10 other questions. And that idea was pretty central to how we made decisions. And we just made kind of decision after decision like that. And we just ended up in a much better spot. And I think, I don't always think that we were tactically that strong. I actually think execution wise, YouTube had lots of weaknesses, but we tended to get the broad strokes pretty right. We, you know, we decided we're going to pay partners. We decided we're not, we're going to value consistency over comprehensiveness. We decided a principle we called even playing fields, which is all about how to make sure that like, the longer version was even playing fields, invite more play. And I think we got a lot of those things right. And as we did, the ship gradually started turning and, and you know, it worked. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds like the underlying ideas there is like reframe questions so they're not good versus evil, but something that you can have a real debate about. Be willing to answer the super hairy question because a lot of times it'll end up answering 10 questions down the line and figuring out, you know, those debates like consistency versus comprehensiveness and building a long-term value around one of them so that it does kind of automatically answer more of those questions. I want to get into one more quick topic on meetings and then I want to jump into the trends of like what's happening right now and what's going to happen next. I think meetings are one of the things that plagues everybody. And I think it's become an especially acute problem in the remote work area because you don't have any of that in between time. There's no water cooler time where you can have these like quick little discussions that often lead to these amazing serendipitous revelations that can really lead you forward. And instead, what you have to do is just like schedule a meeting for everything, even if it like really probably only needs five minutes, like nobody schedules five minute Zoom calls. And so you just end up on these like much longer calls than necessary. Oftentimes, 
sometimes it feels like nothing's getting done. You'll be on a call where there's like 27 people on the call, but there are three people talking and everyone else is like basically tuned out and just doing their task management. So maybe you could just give us a quick few thoughts on how to run more effective meetings, not just as the leader, but how as somebody who is attending these meetings can help to massage them in the direction that you really need them to go to be more effective. And so you can actually get back to doing the real work. Well, I have lots of thoughts on this topic. And by the way, we should come back to your observation about what do you do with the five minute water cooler in a distributed world? I think that's an important topic as well. But let's just talk about the core of meetings first. And it's a favorite topic of mine. It's obviously teams that do it well, it's a superpower and teams that do it poorly. It's the top of every employee feedback survey. And so you have to figure out where you're going to be on, on that spectrum. I did this interesting discussion on another podcast with Reed Hoffman, and we ended up talking about this quote from Bing Gordon. You know, Bing was uh, one of the founders of EA. He's a famous investor now and board of Amazon and Zynga. And so he has this quote I really love. He says, every company has a small list of golden rituals, and there are three criteria. Number one, they are named. Number two, every employee knows them by the first Friday. And number three, they are templated. And he's, he's got a long list of examples. He talks about Amazon has six pagers and Google has OKRs and Salesforce has V2Mom. And there's all these different golden rituals that teams have. And then they asked me what, what Codas was. And, and I ended up actually running the exercise and asking a bunch of employees on their first Friday. And interestingly, the first time I did it, this group of employees, they all came back and said, oh, Dorian Pulse. And Dorian Pulse is actually, it's how we run meetings. And it was quite interesting to me that was such so high on their list. But just to explain what they are, Dory is how we take questions in meetings. So we don't go around the room. Uh, we don't like raise hands or let people talk over each other. Everybody adds their questions to a list. Obviously in a code doc, they vote their questions up and down and we go through them in order. And then Pulse is how we collect uh, feedback in a meeting. And the way we do it is we'll say, we'll have some decision we need to make. Should we launch this feature? Should we enter this market? Should we buy this company? Whatever it might be. Should we hire this, hire this candidate? And what we do is everybody silently fills in their view. And they, generally, there's like a number, like one through five or something like that, and then a space for your response and reasoning. And then you check a box and you see everybody else's. But you do it privately without seeing everybody else's. And then you see see everybody. So it's Dory and Pulse is what we call them. And so I'm asking a set of employees. And I said, so what's interesting about Coda Culture and what are the golden rituals that you would remember at the, you know, with Bing's three tests? And it's a Dory and Pulse. And I said, well, it's interesting. I didn't realize you guys were meeting wonks. And he said, no, no, no. The reason why it's so interesting, it's like it's deeply indicative of our culture. And that like Dory to, to them is really the core idea is that great ideas can come from anywhere. And we're a very inclusive culture. So the idea that the CEO's questions and everybody else's questions are on an even playing field and everybody can both go up and down is really interesting. And then Pulse is really about removing groupthink. And it's about making sure that we really hear what everybody thinks. And then we can go discuss and do what we want for it. It turns out they also are significantly more efficient. I'm sure you've been in meetings where one person dominates the whole discussion or you go around the room to hear what people think. And by the time first person says it's a good idea, second person says it's a good idea, third person kind of stuck. Like it's really hard to, to disagree where the room is headed. And so interestingly, this ritual turned out to be pretty impactful for us. And it's become a superpower for the company. We've leaned into it in a bunch of ways. We've adjusted it. Now we have what we call the anonymous story so that you can add the questions, but we remove who asked it until we're ready to start answering as a way to remove some more bias. We have a few where we play a specific game where it's like, we need you to pick out of these list of five things, but you can only get to rank them instead of just pick them. But you kind of end up framing each of these things in a slightly different way. I think that idea of figuring out those rituals is very important. Now, if I like back all the way up to your question, like what, what makes great meetings? That's, that's ours. And I think that's our, that's our secret. And it's, these, this group of employees said they probably saw 20 Dory Pulse combinations in their first week of Coda. It's everywhere. It's every meeting. It'd be weird to walk into a Coda meeting and not have a Dory Pulse. People would look at you kind of funny. I turned this actually in a, a project for the year. So I'm actually writing a book called Rituals of Great Teams. And people are interested. Feel free to feel free to ping me and I'll give you early access. Maybe you can suggest rituals and help me out. But I spent much of my year going and interviewing other companies. And so I've interviewed over a thousand companies now, collected up hundreds of these different rituals. Basically the goal is to publish the rituals of hundred plus amazing teams and leaders. And you get like all these different insights and there's a common theme for the ones that are related meetings. And the common theme is the people that do a good job of it, think about their meetings like a product. 
and they say, all right, what do I want? Like, do I want, if you were building a product, you would think about how do I want people to start and how do I want them to engage and when do I want them to go away and come back and what are the incentives I want from this meeting? And the good ones, that's what they do. And they kind of figure out, like for us, it was about a feeling of inclusivity. It's a feeling of contribution, a feeling of no group thing. Others have different things they optimize for. Let's say I, I can give you another example. Stripe does a meeting, that's their ops review, and they do a thing, and Stripe's well-known for being you know, highly reliable. I mean, an amazing amount of the world's commerce runs through Stripe servers. And so being reliable really, really matters. And they do a thing called spin the wheel. So in their ops review, everybody writes any incidents that happened in the past week, everybody does a write-up, small or big, but they don't go through all of them. They spin a wheel and they go through a random one. And, you know, David Singleton, who runs engineering there, would say the reason they do that is it gives everybody a feeling of you got to take care of the small things first. Like most companies, you don't go through the big incidents, but they go through, sometimes they go through a tiny one and they see, okay, what happened that didn't really cause any issues, but that's their culture, right? It's like, you got to watch all the little things too. And when I talk to people about redesigning your meetings, I often start with what are your goals? What are your cultural goals? And not just like, what is your goal in that meeting? What are you trying to have your meetings be known for? You want like fast command control decision-making, okay, set up your meetings one way. If you'd like collaboration, you'd like to hear from everybody, set them up a different way. So that's sort of the common theme I've seen. I've now seen meetings from a lot of different companies. I think it's a common theme I see from the really good ones. Quickly, I do want to hear that thing about what do you do with those five-minute conversations that we've lost largely due to remote work? The things that, you know, you'd be in the hallway talking with somebody afterwards and maybe it doesn't like deserve a full email chain or even a full meeting, but like it's an important question or just like a lingering idea in your head. You know, how do you sort of revive some of that serendipity so that we don't lose that all to like perfectly scheduled calendars? So the short version is that's just another design constraint. You say, okay, I want to design a way to meet that I would take that, think of that is I want something that's multi-threaded and where there's easy permission for incredibly short discussions. Our way of doing this is we do a thing called bullpen. I actually started doing this at YouTube. So YouTube, the way it worked was I would have my staff meeting and then for an hour afterwards, we just left the room open and the rule was you just have to stay. You can sit and work, you can do whatever, you just have to stay in that room, that's it. And what would happen is that's where all these ad hoc discussions would happen. And people would actually come often prepared with a list. And they'd say, I need to talk to this person about this. And I need to talk to that person about that. And I need to talk to this other person about this. And then all these like emerging conversations would happen. The product manager is talking to the marketer. And then the PR person walks over and says, I didn't know you were doing that. And then you have that part of the conversation and so on. And so we designed the forum around this sort of emergent behavior. We would do it twice a week originally and then eventually three times a week. I do a similar thing at Coda. It's a little bit more challenging to do at Coda because we're a very distributed company. And so the, the same room dynamic isn't as easy, but we found a way to do it. And we end up using Zoom for doing it. We found a way to do it with breakout rooms. It's quite reasonable. But I think you just have to design that meeting that way with the goal of, I want multi-threaded conversations. I want to incentivize the short wrap-up, not the long one. Don't let the like half-hour natural calendar scheduling boundary dictate the natural length of your discussion. I love that. That's super important. So you mentioned earlier that like great companies can kind of be boiled down to a, a simple thesis. What is that thesis for Coda? Yeah, I mean, for Coda, it's, it's pretty simple. It's we believe that anyone should be able to make a doc as powerful as an app. And I think that it comes out of a set of observations. But the most important one is we think the world has unfairly drawn a line between documents and applications. And if you go ask any team how they do their work or ask any family how they operate or so on, any of them will rattle off the tools that teams will say, okay, this is what we use for CRM and we use the same for task tracking. We have this inventory tool, we have the project tool and so on. And then if you just sit and watch them work all day long, what do they do? They're in documents, spreadsheets, slides, and some communication tool. And interestingly, that's like kind of how everything works, but we don't realize that the world has artificially divided us into these are documents and these are applications. And so we started with this idea that people use documents a lot like applications. And this was actually a big learning from YouTube. YouTube was born basically the same genre as Google Docs. The Google Docs shipped, rightly shipped in 2005, YouTube shipped in 2006. And so we kind of grew up with that product and we ran everything on Google Docs. And some of it was, as we look, would look back at it, we'd say, some of it we'd say proudly, but I didn't like how Google did OKR. So we did it a little bit differently. And we had to build our own tools to do it. So we did a big Google Sheet. We did compensation and performance management a little bit differently. We did a thing we call level independent compensation. It's probably a topic for a whole other podcast. But, you know, the HR team, Lazo, let us do it. But 
I had to do it in our own set of docs and sheets. One of the most interesting examples for a long time, when you flagged a video on YouTube on the website, it would show up as a row in a spreadsheet on an ops person's desk. And you know, the interesting thing is people used to kind of make fun of us like, oh gosh, those YouTube guys like run on stitched together documents and sheets and slides. And I would look at them and say, no, no, you're missing the point. Like this is, we now have control. I can change the way we do planning or I can change the way we do compensation. I can change the way that we do flagging and content review and so on. We can change it instantly. We don't have to wait for somebody else and we own it. It's ours. And I think that idea was like really powerful. But unfortunately, those tools weren't great for it. I mean, the way Google Docs, Sheets, after created, they're sort of stuck in these metaphors from really from like the 1970s. I mean, it's like the, the core of documents hasn't really changed since WordStar, Harvard Graphics, and VisiCalc got their initial start. So that's how we started Coda. We said, if we could start from scratch and build an entirely new type of doc, we bet we could get the right, the metaphors right for how documents are actually used today, which we think is a lot closer to how people think about applications. So that's the thesis for Coda. So we, you know, we started off talking about how you got to eat your frog first, pick it the night before ideally, and just do the hardest task first. So you don't dread it the rest of the day. It's not weighing on you and sapping that, you know, that muscle, that strength and endurance of willpower. You know, people think of your email being other people's vision of your to-do list. You know, your task manager is your vision of your to-do list and your calendar is what you actually end up doing. But easily that can really get out of control. You know, if you're booking all of your time into calendar, you're not going to actually have time to get real things done. If you're focused just on clearing out your email box, you're basically forfeiting control. And so, you know, it really makes sense to figure out what is your style and then stick to it. Don't get caught in the middle, but pick an extreme. Either you're just going to say, hey, I don't think about answering every single email or clearing every email out of my box, or I stay aggressively at inbox zero, because once you get over 100, all of a sudden it becomes this extra mental weight in your head. Suddenly it's going to be at 500 and it's going to get a lot worse. And, you know, when it comes to email, you you can really uh, improve by not context switching, by instead, you know, Shashir's strategy is this two pass method where you first just label everything and then you can go through topically and actually choose what you want to do and do those longer form responses in less of a triage format. And whatever taxonomy you pick, coloring, labels, try to use that across all of your different productivity apps so that you're not constantly context switching. But most importantly, maybe just figuring out, are you an Etch-a-Sketcher or a piler? Etch-a-Sketchers, they want to start fresh each day. They want to come up with what feels like the most important thing now and just do that versus, you know, pilers where they're going to build this immaculate task list and constantly be adding and crossing things off. And it's much more consistent over time. And it's not to say that one is better than the other. It's really just about picking what style works for you. And for a lot of people, getting things out of their head and onto a list, it feels like dumping stuff out of RAM and into storage. You finally can sort of move a little bit faster. And so that might be valuable. But if you're somebody who really dreads that list piling up, maybe it's just important to start each day with picking your frog and just going at that. And you also need to really understand like what is a project versus a task? You know, some people love to break down their projects into every tiny little indescript task. But sometimes, you know, like Shashir, all you really need to do is know what is your next task? Because once you get done with that, it probably becomes even clearer what the task after that really should be. And you know, Shashir, he developed this whole sense of productivity, this entire strategy while working at Outlook and Microsoft. You know, he saw that other people were getting really serious about their productivity. And you know, he realized that by combining calendar tasks and communication and email into one product, you're really able to think of them holistically as just how you spend your time. And he was having nightmares about you know not getting things done or be still being in school. And you know, he was talking to Larry Page about you know, how he spends 30 hours per week in his calendar. And Larry said that that was way too much and he wanted more serendipity. So it really is to each their own, but pick a, a strategy and go forward with that. You know, willpower and mental space really are a muscle that gets fatigued over time. And so, you know, making sure that you're building a system that adds as little additional overhead stress as you can is really important. And I loved hearing your stories this year of being at YouTube, you know, that it had this kind of terrible reputation. It was losing all this money, losing a penny per view in some cases. But, you know, there was a team of pirates and it was a fun culture. And so they were really able to build things up from scratch, building entirely new uh, ways to collaborate, ways to run meetings, to make decisions. And he told us about this beautiful idea that, you know, every company really comes down to one simple thesis, you know, whether that was Gmail's thesis that people shouldn't have to delete their email or YouTube's thesis that what cable did to broadcast YouTube is going to do to cable. You know, find that specific uh, concept and then build a set of principles around it. And I love the idea that you, know, you gave an example of this 
this eigen decision, this eigen question, which is the one question that helps you actually answer 10 more questions because it's so specific. And for you guys, it was that modern family question. Should YouTube link out to abc.com to send people to modern family if that's what they were looking for? Or should it wait until maybe there's enough yeah, parody content, reaction content, official content to fill those searches? And you, know, you guys really picked that rather than it being good versus evil of like, oh, doing the right thing of sending people out versus doing the, the evil thing of you know hoarding their attention. You thought of it as being more about consistency versus comprehensiveness. And then it stops being good versus evil. It starts to be something you can actually debate in good faith. And you guys pick that consistency as your guiding principle. And that's what led you to want to take back control of the YouTube app from Apple and build all of these functions across different platforms to be as consistent as possible. So people always knew what they were getting when they were going there. But to be able to make those kind of great decisions, you need meetings to be a superpower for you. And that means creating rituals that are named, templatized, and everybody knows them within days of getting there. Now for Shashir and at Coda, you know, they use a Dorian Pulse. Dory is you know, named after the, the Finding Nemo character who always has questions. Instead of just going around the room or raising hands you know, or, or asking you know, the most important or powerful person in the room what their question is, have everybody submit questions via you know, an, an online interface. That way, you know, you know that great ideas can come from anywhere and not just the CEO. And constantly get that pulse of the room, that feedback, without it being colored by everyone else's decisions. At Coda, they have people silently fill in their views, you know, one to five about how confident they are in a decision with a little bit of space for comment. And then you don't see everyone else's answers until you actually answer yourself. And that avoids group thinking or avoids everybody reverting to the mean or feeling like they can't be the one contrarian or that they have to go along with what the boss says. But, you know, if you can build a meeting like a product where you know how you want people to start, to engage, to go away and come back, the incentives and the outcomes you want, you can create meetings that you're actually known for, whether that's, you know, a much more fast and decisive top-down control or something that's really inclusive and takes ideas from everybody. But using those design constraints is really important and you shouldn't be constrained by just what exists in your existing apps. Just because Zoom wants you to default to a half-hour meeting doesn't mean an hour meeting is the only way to meet. And I think we're losing some of that incredibly important serendipity in the between conversations when we're working remotely. And it would be great to have some of those back, but Shashir gave a great example of using a bullpen strategy where you can have a meeting, but then afterwards have an hour where people all just co-work silently together, but they can break off into little breakout rooms, whether that's in person or in Zoom or whatever, so that they can have those quick conversations and not feel like they're bothering somebody just to get five minutes of their time to be able to help them make a decision. And so with Coda, you know, they're trying to make a doc as powerful as any app because you know, we have so many tools now that we went through this phase of wanting to unbundle all of these tools that were poorly you know, conglomerated in a few different platforms. And now we have all these little point solutions, but it's getting really messy. And so I think the integration and the rebundling is the next big thing that's happening. But I just love the idea that if you can pick the things that matter most to you, pick the, you know, find the leverage of how you can make decisions faster and more inclusively and minimize the stress on that muscle of decision-making, you can get so, so much more done. Uh, Shashir, did that capture your, your thoughts properly? Oh my God, that was amazing. I feel like you didn't even take a breath in the middle of all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't need to breathe. That's, that, would, that would ruin my productivity. Shir, for a final question for you, maybe you could just tell us, what do you think productivity looks like in five years? What are the major trends influencing that and going to look different then? There's a few different things I would say. I mean, probably the most obvious one is Dakota mission is I believe that we're going to see this trend in docs are, docs as powerful as apps. Um, and we're going to see this. You, what you're describing is the, the rebundling of these surfaces. Code is often described as an all-in-one doc that, that pulls all those things together. And I think that trend at this point is pretty clear. We're going to see that collapsing together as we remove the need to stick to old file formats and applications. And now we can reimagine what a document looks like. The other thing I'd say that I'm really excited about was this insight when we ship the Coda Gallery. If you go to Coda.io slash gallery, you'll see at this point, there's thousands of docs, it gets millions of visitors and people go and they publish their ideas, their rituals into these documents. Many of the ones I mentioned earlier, the one from Des Trainer about how you spend your time, the Venn diagram between email, calendar and tasks, that's the doc in there. So the eigen question one and so on. And the interesting thing is like, if you take just Des's example, you know, Des is not a software developer, but he managed to take this thing and turn it into an implementation. I mean, you know, what do we usually do these days? If you saw a tweet like that, you'd like it, maybe you'd really like it. And so you'd like move your thumb over and you'd retweet it, but that's kind of it. And I think what he managed to do 
even though he's not a software developer, would build a better piece of software for managing your time than anything I'd ever seen. And I've now been using it for you know a year and a half with the little complaint. And you know, I've tried every tool on the planet. I think that idea that the next class of not only like documents and experience and so on are going to come out of these new tools, but the next class of developers are going to come out of these tools. And next we call them makers. They're not going to think that they're making apps. They think they're making docs. I get asked a lot about how I went from YouTube to Coda. And for some people, it seems so weird. Like it's, you went from media to productivity and it seems like such a big change. In my head, it's actually completely linear. And, you know, if you think back to what we're talking about with YouTube, the core insight between uh, behind YouTube, you know, many people underestimated YouTube. And I think that the key thing they missed was they underestimated humans. I mean, why isn't YouTube going to do the cable, cable to broadcast? Because people thought, well, to make good content, make good video, you have to go to film school and at USC and you have to live in LA and you have to have a studio and you have to have millions of dollars of camera equipment. And they were just wrong about all that. And all these people came out and said, we can do this and we can build really good things because our insights are what matter and the tools kept up with them. And I think that phenomenon, we, we sometimes call it the maker generation, is happening in so many industries. You know, Spotify is helping it happen to music and with Etsy, anybody who's, who's really good with their hobbies and crafts can all of a sudden sell them and turn into a business. Even things like if you think about games, like the, the most popular games these days, all Minecraft, Fortnite, and so on, they all rely on the community to make the game. They can, you can reshape the whole thing. And I think that what we're watching happen with productivity, and certainly what we're betting on with Coda, is that tools like Coda are going to do to software what YouTube did to video. And we're going to see this explosion of types of things that people can create, despite lacking the traditional skills for, for doing it. And that's really exciting uh, to me. I love that idea that you know, these no-code tools for collaboration and productivity are going to spawn the developers of tomorrow because they're going to see that it doesn't really matter about file formats. There shouldn't be divisions between types of information. All that matters is that you're getting things done, not that it looks like the way that it used to. And we don't need to just constantly bring the old paradigms with us. If you're trying to build something new, it makes sense to break down those walls as much as possible. Love that idea. So. Thank you so much, Ashir, for, for coming today. Um, like I said, in just a minute, we're going to bring some people up on stage, but I just want to give you a quick thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much for being here today with us on Press Club, where big names in tech talk about the big ideas, talking about productivity. I hope everybody here learns something about how to get a little bit more control of their life. You don't need to start a podcast or cut your bangs, which I think are big calls for help. Uh, if one of your friends is doing that, maybe you should ask them if they need if they need something. But instead, you know, eat your frog the first thing in the morning. Do the hard hardest thing first and everything else will look easy by comparison. Thank you so much everyone for being here on Press Club today. It's been my pleasure. I'm here with Shashir Mahotra. Thank you, Josh. Great interview.